Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of THP Strength. Today, we are going to be diving into plyometrics. We're going to be talking about every potential progression I've seen and the ones that I really like, why I like them, and I guess how you how you should progress them, what order you should put them in, and what each different camp says. So we have a ton of different information and I will try to clearly and concisely put it together. I'm also gonna add power plyometrics to this. And yeah, we'll get going here. Hunter, do you want me to give a brief summary of, I guess, what they are, how to progress them, et cetera? Yeah, from the outside looking in, I think that a lot of people think of plyometrics as, oh, that's those things you do before warming up, high knees and skips. Oh, like calisthenics. Stuff like that. <laughs> Ladder drills. That's what we do. And I don't think a lot of people totally appreciate how advanced you can make plyometrics and how incredibly difficult <laughs> they can become. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's definitely. In terms of coor coordination requirements and just recovery requirements. Yeah. Okay. Um, I can get into some of that stuff. We can talk about the research. We can talk about the physiology and the biomechanics of it. I just want to take some quick notes so that I'm clear and concise whenever I'm going into the details so that I don't get sidetracked, which I have a tendency to do. All right. Physiology. No. This stuff comes from a bunch of different researchers. Origin of this really starts with a guy named Yuri Verkoshansky. I believe he was an engineer at a researcher, or he was a, sorry, re, a researcher, an engineer or something like that at a university. And he wanted to, he actually, he was a track coach. He was literally just a track coach, did it for a club. <laughs> and he was like, hey, I really love track. I want to get these guys performing well and being Olympians and stuff. And I believe he started with like his students or something like that. I don't know the full story. I read his like forum probably two years ago or whatever. And he's just like, he's using these students and they're getting way better on his training. He's experimenting with some different stuff and shock training comes to be. And he makes this whole progression over the entirety of his life about how he integrates them and how he would use them with varying levels of, or varying training experience levels as well as talent and really pioneered shock training, which was you hit the ground and it's a shock to your body and landing is actually more important, which was counterintuitive at the time. He also was one of the people that really started to push weightlifting and like a forefather of training in general, very important person. You cause if you guys are interested in it, you should definitely look into some of the stuff that he talks about. And he did a ton of research studies and is just a super smart coach. Probably one of the best coaches ever. I would say definitely someone I really respect too. So that all said, how it works is your body is a lever system. It is made up of bones and it is made up of tendons and muscles in terms of moving yourself forward. Your brain is connected with the nervous system down to those muscles. And it is the driver for the movement that you perform with this lever system. Why this is relevant is all of those pieces are very important when you're looking at how to improve performance. Each one has a unique role in locomotion. So if you're sprinting, for example, you have the bones moving in a cyclic manner and sequencing such that muscles are turning on and off very quickly, which are stretching tendons at different times, getting you to propel yourself all while doing it in a 
very fluid, sequential manner, which is the role of your nervous system. So you can see how the muscles, the bones, the tendons in your nervous system all play an important role. Plyometrics address all of those in a very specific manner for collisions, which is landing and taking off again. Running is a collision. Sprinting is a collision. Jumping off two feet involves collisions with a variety of ground times, forces, and which change the ultimate outcome of what you're trying to do. There's a lot here I'm trying to sum up, but I'm trying to do it clearly and concisely. So back to Verkoshansky. He trained these jumpers and was running into an issue where in the winter he couldn't run on a track outside. So he's like, how do I do this and get these jumpers to jump higher? And how do I make them improve and whatever else and starts measuring a bunch of stuff and integrating different types of bounding and different types of depth jumps. And he sees that his jumpers get way freaking better. <laughs> and he was trying to combat the doping that was happening in Russia at the time with his, with their athletes and basically said, there's gotta be a better way to do this. There's gotta be a safer way to do this than just plowing on all this training. And then he really started to experiment with block training and sequentially building it out. So it would start with strength work. Then it would go to, and it, or I think it would start with extensive plyos and strength work or sorry, I'm gonna say this again, just strength work. Then it would go to, or it would have extensive plyos as well. Then it would go into strength work and intensive plyos. Then it would go into power work and intensive plyos. And then it would go into just plyos. And it would start with extensive plyos being really low, light, easy bounds, intensive plyos being more intense bounding and depth jumps being the end of the progression. The power work was just in the form of barbell jumps and kettlebell jumps. So it was just that progression. It was strength work and bounding power work and more intense bounding and then depth jumps. That was like basically it. There's probably more details to that, but I'm not going to cover all of it to my understanding and what I've read. That is a pretty clear and succinct way. Granted it's been two years, but to the best of my memory, that's how it was. So, so, so when you're writing programs, most people think of a mesocycle to mesocycle, either growing in intensity or, or volume or both. So when you're thinking of programs, are you writing the weightlifting slash powerlifting part of the programs to progress into an intense plyometric mesocycle? There are progressions inside of progressions in the programming. For example, I have an entire progression that I'll use for just squatting alone. I have an entire progression I will use for cleans. I will have an entire progression for snatch. I have an entire progression for Olympic lifting that there is a weekly progression. There is a like session to session within the week. There's a progression from Monday to Friday. There's a progression from one Monday to the next Monday. There's a progression from one month to the next month. And there's a progression from season to season. So indoor to outdoor. And there's a progression from year to year for every single element. So when I'm writing training, you have to understand it's not just strength training that I'm, and I'm not just going to strength train and then just do plyos. I'm putting everything in there and progressing each element of training in a very uniform, systematic manner with intentional increases in load, intentional decreases in load and changes in workload changes in the type of contacts I'm doing. If it's a plyo changes in the type of velocity downward I'm using. If it's a lift, the velocity upwards of a lift, taking out stretch shortening cycles, taking out amortization periods at certain times of year. For example, if I have a jumper, I might put box squats towards the end of the year. 
that sounds counterintuitive. Why would you do that? Because we're towards the end of the year, because box squats now we're seeing could be highly specific for two foot jumpers. How can you possibly say that? It's not a fast eccentric contraction. If you look at some of the newer research from Katie Albrecht or, or some of the groups in Scandinavia, shout out Thomas Gordon Beck, you would see that the stretch shortening cycle, the stretch shortening cycle success is predicated on your ability to tug on the tendon concentrically, meaning it's not a standard eccentric con isometric concentric contraction, meaning the muscle isn't lengthening, holding that length and then shortening. What's actually happening is the muscle is just holding tension and then shortening. And you can think about it. If you had an extension spring, the muscle is just pulling the tendon backwards concentrically. So if you're taking out the value of the eccentric contraction in training, then you need to have, or if you're taking, if you're discovering that the eccentric contraction is not as important in training or in performance, then you should not be doing that thing towards the end of the year. Cause it's not very specific. So in my progression, I'm going to take that and put that in such that box squats are very close to the end of the year or when I want the athlete to peak. Why? Because it's specific and training goes from general to specific. So there's one example of a progression, how I might use it and why I always say it depends. <laughs> like every athlete is different. If that's, if I'm just looking at the patella and how the patella functions, what about the gastroc? What about the soleus? Those function completely differently and it's tax task dependent. If you're a sprinter, then the slow concentric action or isometric contraction is majorly important in your soleus and in your gastroc. Because again, the gastroc and the soleus is just functioning isometrically every time your foot hits the ground. And this tendon is stretching because the joint levers are increasing the angulation at the ankle joint and stretching the tendon because it's hooked at the muscle and it's hooked at the heel. So as the heel, as you go into dorsiflexion, you're stretching the tendon out. The, the tendon is stretching. The muscle is just holding isometrically or even shortening more so that that anchoring point as your foot touches the ground, the angulation increases at the ankle joint, the tendon stretches because the calf is just holding one side of it. So one side of it is pulling because you're moving into dorsiflexion. The other side is just holding it. Now imagine if one of those sides actually pulled concentrically, their muscle, sorry, at the top pulled concentrically. And now the ankle is going into dorsiflexion. So if it's anchored at the heel and you're going to dorsiflexion, you're stretching the Achilles. And if now you're pulling concentrically with a ga gastroc in the calf or the gastroc and the soleus, now you're able to stretch it again. So you get more stretching. And if you know anything about Hooke's law, you're getting a bigger return on that investment <laughs> Be or you're getting a bigger return because tendons are faster at returning energy. And now your muscle that cannot contract at 0.1 seconds, 0.08 seconds, doesn't have to, all it has to do is just anchor the Achilles or pull on it more and allow it to release that energy on the push-off. And that's essentially what happens in sprinting. That's what happens in plyometrics in the Achilles, depending on what plyometric you're doing. And that's what can happen at the knee too. We're actually seeing all of that said, every progression inside of the training is moving towards maximizing that mechanism. So at the beginning of the year, if I'm starting something general, meaning general, meaning not specific or relatively not similar to what I want at the end of the year, I'm going to do something that's really not similar, which is maximizing eccentric contraction force or doing potentially even fast concentric work <laughs> because that's not actually specific. Maybe it would be starting on a box and standing up really fast. That's not specific because the research has indicated that the Achilles is 
or the gastroc and the soleus muscularly, the fascicles are acting in an isometric or con slow, very slow concentric condition. Relatively slow, I guess I should say, because 0.1 seconds is not slow. <laughs> but there's also pre-anticipation, so that muscle contraction is happening earlier and sooner. Meaning, as the athlete's foot is coming down towards the ground, they're actually anticipating it's about to strike, subconsciously. And the gastroc and the soleus start pulling already, even before the foot touches the ground. So, maybe even there's more time where the muscle has to concentrically contract and start tugging on that tendon. And maybe that gives you value in terms of co-contraction and why you should dorsiflex because again, that'll stretch the Achilles even further, which is going to maximize the output that you get. So I guess maybe that's not the best example because maybe the time interval is actually closer to what you would see in a sprint, but I don't know. I don't have the EMG timeframes and I don't know exactly how much time as you start unfolding or toe off to touchdown how much time concentrically the, the gastroc or soleus is contracting. We don't really know in terms of research, but we do know that in terms of plyos, this is a big change in the paradigm of what we previously understood, which was, hey, eccentric contractions are everything. We need to do big, slow eccentric contractions because eccentric contractions are going to actually improve the stretch shortening cycle, but that's not the case. We're actually seeing that the thing that would probably improve it more is slow concentric contractions and isometric conditions and then doing plyos. So this is way down the rabbit hole. I haven't even explained the basics of plyometrics and what they are and how they work. But to answer your question, Hunter, it is so complex that people don't realize necessarily what or why certain progressions are in there unless you fully understand everything that I just said and know everything about training progressions and know everything about training principles and the laws of training. So there's progressions inside of progressions that change depending on what we are learning about performance and internally and physiologically what is actually happening at the musculotendinous unit. I know I just brain dumped Hunter. Did you understand anything that so I just said? So everyone take a deep breath. And if you're listening on the podcast app, sorry, this might be a YouTube video. <laughs> a lot of hand motions in that last little talk. But okay, so here's something that I gathered from all that. It seems as though plyometrics are incredibly important and offer a lot of bang for your buck. So Wow, that's if interesting. Someone Most people probably wouldn't says, have said that. Most people would have said, I gathered that concentric contractions are very important, but it's okay. <laughs> no. So that's not what I gathered. What I gathered is that there seems to be a lot of benefit in proper plyometrics for conditioning the muscles to maximally produce force. That is very true. Thank you for clearly and, and concisely summing that up for the people that don't understand where my brain went there. <laughs> <laughs> so if that's the case... How do you balance someone who comes to you and says, I want to jump higher in X amount of months or weeks or, or what have you? Why do you not give them only plyometrics? You need to understand that the thing that I just described happening in the Achilles is mega intense. And I do integrate plyometrics immediately in every single person's program because the underlying principles of plyometrics are evident in any skip, in any run, in any sprint in any hop, in any backwards so, skip, in any fast squat down. Those, time, wait, it's principles-based. <laughs> so are you saying, so just for the people, actually the people. members of THP, when you're doing warm-ups and you're supposed to be doing the skips and you're supposed to be doing- Those are low-level plyometrics. The hops and the bounds and all of that stuff. Are you saying that you need to be doing that with maximal intent? No, like when you do your warm-up plyometrics, what intensity are you supposed to be performing those at? This is a really tough question. So boom, at lower intensity levels, you don't see the same physiology happen that you do at higher intensities or max intensities. 
at different ground contact times and different joint velocities, you don't see the same physiology happen to a lesser degree, not necessarily as you would at a high degree. For example, if you're a distance runner, your soleus and gastroc is probably going to function pretty differently and how you strike the ground is going to change drastically compared to an elite upright sprinter, elite upright sprinting. So the low level plyos might address one element of that. For example, if I'm doing a low level plyometric, I might see higher peak forces than I would see if I were lifting a weight or something else in my soleus and in my gastroc. What that means is I might see some tendon adaptation because ultimately the tendon is storing some energy. Depending on how stiff your tendon is, if your tendon's super stiff, it might not really store any energy because the contraction is so slow that your muscle doesn't have enough force to actually stretch it and get a return. You would see that in guys like Yannick Clausen. If you're a really compliant guy, then those low, if your tendons are really soft, then the muscle doesn't have to generate as much force to stretch it and you don't need as much peak force or stretching at the ankle joint. And this is just using the Achilles as an example, but the same applies for the knee and the vastus medialis, lateralis, intermedius. You wouldn't see as much force generation there. And if you had a soft patella, then you might get a big return on these low level plyos because your tendons can function more optimally. How does someone go about assessing their tendon stiffness? If you suck at a standing jump, but you can run into a jump and fly, your tendon stiffness is crazy high. If you need momentum to jump high, your tendon stiffness is pretty high. The more intense the plyometric and the better you do, and I will define how you quantify that, the more stiff your tendons are and the stronger your muscles are and the more penated your fascicles are for force production. So if you have a lot of force or if you have a lot of penation, you're able to fit more cross bridging between my penation. penation is the angle of your muscle fibers. So if you, for example, if you look at your quad is very penated, meaning it has a big angle of the, in terms of Wait, where so, the connective so tissue this is something running that down I don't the muscle think is to the angle by... of the muscle. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think enough people under, like know this. It's a really interesting thing, but a lot of people think muscle fibers are all parallel with one another. They're not. But when you look at them, they actually go in at weird different angles at one another. Different muscles have different penation angles. Your bicep is parallel. So parallel muscles are really fast at contracting. Penated muscles are better at producing force, but they are not able to contract quite as quickly. So you might say, why is my bicep not my jumping muscle? Why is my quad my jumping muscle? Because of the mechanism that I just described, which is slow concentric contractions are better for stretch warning cycles. <laughs> so if you have a muscle that's good at Body's producing force, <laughs> then it's gonna be better at stretching the tendon than a muscle that produces a little bit of force really fast because it's not gonna be strong enough to tuck on the tendon. And it also depends on your tendon stiffness. If you have a really stiff tendon and a really weak muscle, you're not gonna be able to utilize your stiff tendons. So, so that's what you so does that penation affect what's that so does that penation affect the strength of the muscle uh how likely it is for that muscle to be torn mm, maybe because if the fascicles are lengthening really quickly you might see it if you look at the hamstring the hamstring can produce force very quickly it's not a penated muscle why do you see hamstring pulls all the time because it's the contraction velocities are so high <laughs> like you're gonna tear the muscle as the tendon pulls on it really tightly because it's not good at generating more force than the tendon is. If the tendon generates more force than the muscle, guess what happens? The muscle ruptures. If the muscle generates more force than the tendon, guess what happens? The tendon ruptures. If the bone generates more, more force than the tendon does, guess what happens? The tendon ruptures. If the tendon generates more force than the bone rips off. So all of those things are very important when you're looking at how to integrate plyometrics and what plyometrics you're putting in, what muscle groups you're actually recruiting. Because if I'm doing a sprint, then I know I'm getting really fast unfolding of the lower leg, which means that the, the hamstring is unfolding 
so fast that I'm going to see a massive risk of pulling that muscle. I got to plug in my, my laptop. One second, Hunter. I cannot have this die. One sec. I got to run. Hold on to that thought. So while John's away, let's try to sum up what we've discussed so far. A lot of crazy science that is going to require probably listening to multiple times on my end to even have some remote understanding of what was just said. I got it. And John's back. It's like a race. I don't even want you to cut this out. I want you to play mu music, Hunter, with the... I know. I was just saying that for stupid people like me, it's going to take probably 10 re-listens to that little... Yeah, right, we're back. We're back. We're back. <laughs> Rant to understand. So what'd you say? I said for all the slow people out there like me, it's going to take probably listening back 10 times <laughs> to really even get a grasp of what was that. There is a lot of, but let's keep rolling. So if you're looking at sprinting, for example, you're looking at a penation angle that is very low, meaning the collagen fibers, parallel elastic series, the fast, I guess you could call it like there's different types of intramuscular connective tissue that runs through your muscle. If you've ever eaten, this is disgusting, but if you've ever eaten a turkey or a chicken or something like that, you've probably actually seen the connective, if you were to just cut it straight down the middle, you would see these internal, or if you've pulled muscle off of a bone or something like that when you've been eating chicken and you see that kind of white totally fibrous tissue, that is actually the muscle being bound by an internal connective tissue. I believe it is called, there's endomysium, myo means muscle, I'm going to just look them up real quick so I have them right. John Lowkey going to the grocery store to buy chicken breast and chicken thighs to tear them apart to see how they differentiate from one yes, another. please. Okay, so <laughs> for perspective, the very outside of the muscle is there is a connective tissue called paramecium. You can think about it. I think about them like plastic bags. If you've ever seen a plastic bag, it tapers up into the handle and the handle is actually really strong. But where is the food going to fall out? It's going to fall out of the bottom because the plastic paper or the plastic bag is not as strong there. You can think about that, all of the connective tissue in your muscle being like the bottom of the plastic bag. It's thinner, it's not quite as strong, but there's more of it, it's got a big surface area, and it's these layerings of connective tissue around an individual muscle fiber, you have endomysium. And around the individual fascicle, you have epimysium, and then around the entire groupings of those muscle fascicles, you have paramecium and all of those connective tissues run together into this dense rope-like structure, which is your tendon, but it's the same exact connective tissue. It's just running into and binding or running into each other such that it creates a rope-like structure. It's, it's so complex, but that is actually the specifics of what is happening. So I can't remember why exactly I was talking about this, Hunter. Did you ask me a question about this? <laughs> we were going into what makes muscle, certain muscle types more or less likely to be torn compared to one another. Okay, yeah. So, and oh, so it was about why, what penation angle is. So the endomysium, which is this internal wrapping or the internal wrapping of the muscle or a wrapping around the muscles and the fascicles and the angle that those fascicles come out from the, that connective tissue defines the penation angle. So if you're, you have a line of connective tissue that runs straight down, if you've ever seen the quad, it has, comes out like angles. If you have the connective tissue, it runs right down the middle. The angle that fascicle is with that line of connective tissue is the penation angle. So if you have a muscle that connects like this, it's going to contract in the line, 
in the same exact direction that the connective tissue is bound. So if you look at the hamstring, that's how the hamstring set up. You have a muscle and you have the connective tissue. It just runs in the same direction. So it's really good at pulling up really quickly. <laughs> but if you have an angle with that connective tissue, like the quad does, then it's actually going to pull at an angle. It's going to, it's going to have a better leverage, but it's not going to be able to move the connective tissue the same distance. It's literally just a lever system. It's a lever system inside of a lever system inside of a lever system. So if you have a really fast muscle that's good at contracting, it's going to, you're going to see really high forces at the tendon, which can pull that muscle because it can't generate a lot of force. But if you have the quad, for example, which had a bunch of penation angle, it can produce a ton of force. So odds are, it's probably not going to tear because the tendon's not going to generate more muscle, more force. The, mu the muscle, the tendon is not going to generate more force than the muscle will and such that the muscle won't tear. Is that the brain putting the, the, the slowdown? Whoa, whoa, whoa. The brain can say, Hey, whoa, hit the brakes here. But usually if you're doing something that is pre-anticipated, meaning it's happened in your head, even before you started it, foul line dunks, a great example. I was on a call with the Hawkins dynamics guy and they said this, they're like, the foul line dunk starts before you started the dunk. And I'm like, you're right. Because you've already created a motor mapping of what you're going to do. Your brain already knows it's patterning. It's already patterned the entire movement before it starts in your head. So if you've patterned the entire movement, and this is why repetitions are so important and different contexts are so important. You are already going to perform at a high level before you even started it. You've already created the neural mapping of what you're going to do to perform at a high level. When Isaiah goes to do a dunk and he so, throws the lob, you'll hear him say this. I know I'm going to jump high before I jump. How? Because he's created the neural mapping. When you're having on day, that's what happens. Your brain so is so dialed in. So what how quickly those muscles can contract? What's is that, that all training? How quickly those muscles can contract? It genetics, is your ability, part, the actual genetics play a role, but your nervous is like, why is it that Isaiah can jump higher than Usain Bolt? Why can he jump higher than a long jumper? Why can he jump higher than a bobsledder? Those guys are way better athletes, way better athletes, way more genetically gifted, not even close. Why can these dudes on right, steroids Isaiah. jump way lower than Isaiah can? I didn't say it. Why, you know, even powerlifters, why weightlifters? Because the importance of rate coding, your muscles ability to turn on and off muscles at the right time, the importance of pre-anticipation, which is a massive part of plyometrics, anticipating the ground before you land, and turning on those muscles earlier and earlier in anticipation of landing, and your ability to store energy in your tendons and produce more and more force is a massive indicator or predictor of your performance in the subsequent thing you're about to do. The more you do something, the better you get at that neural mapping or patterning. The better you are at patterning, the better you're going to jump. For example, I just bought a dog. Love my dog, Bailey. She's so cute. She's sleeping in the other room amazingly. She was outside running around with me today. When she's in my apartment, I noticed that I patterned her commands. I would say, come, sit, lay down, come, sit, lay down, come, sit, lay down. Before I even started saying come, or when I said come, Bailey would come, sit, lay down. She would do it so fast that I didn't even have time to reward her for each of the tasks because that's a whole pattern in her head. She's already learned it. Take this another step. Now, if I put her outside, I say, Bailey, come. She's like, oh, but there's, there's, a, there's a car. And, and over there, there's some dog shit that I need to smell. And over there, there's some dog piss I need to smell. So all of that patterning goes out the window. Think about a foul line dunk. Why is a foul line dunk so difficult in a game? Because you're not going to pattern that when you have the context of five other defenders and four other teammates running around you. You can't anticipate what that jump is going to look like. That's why high jumpers and dunkers jump higher than anyone else. They can anticipate the entire takeoff before it happens. Zion Williamson is so freaky athletic, he doesn't need to pattern anything. 
He doesn't need to pattern anything. He's so explosive. He patterns it, but it's like, I can produce so much force faster than other people. I don't even need to anticipate that it's about to happen. It's easier for me to anticipate things are about to happen because I can do it over and over again in different contexts because I'm so explosive. <laughs> Keep bringing love to the Pelicans, baby. Come on. <laughs> yeah, you're Suck lucky. at the you other 29 NBA teams. Keep talking about Zion. <laughs> so it's, it's interesting. It underpins a lot of these freak track and field performances and underpins a lot of other things. So you asked, will your brain just turn off the movement so you don't pull the muscle? It can, but it's probably not going to happen because you're going to, you've already picked the movement before you did it. You already patterned the movement before, before you actually committed to completing it. So you're not going to stop. You're going to stop after you feel it. You're going to pull your muscle. If you're doing a lift or something like that, you could maybe shut the muscle down via the Golgi tendon organ. But when you perform at a high level, you shut the Golgi tendon organ down. You shut that reflex down because you don't want it to inhibit force. So yeah, you're going to pull a muscle if you're doing something intense. So no, your brain probably won't shut off unless you're really untrained to for self-preservation. I didn't even go into plyometrics. <laughs> I know we haven't really gone deep into plyometrics, but we've gone into a bunch of other really cool what, things. How far are we through this? We are, let's see, we've done 30 minutes of discussing tangential information around plyometrics. Oh, my dog's barking. I'm gonna, I think we close it off here. I covered so much information. I don't even know. Let's mic drop. Maybe what we do later. is we call it plyometrics part one. <laughs> let's do it. Plyometrics part one. Like, comment, subscribe. And if you're listening on Apple, go ahead and leave a review if you like it. If you didn't, just DM me. Don't leave that review. Just let me know on Instagram what we did wrong. Make sure you guys share this Don't as leave much that as review. possible. Get it out. We want to try to become <laughs> unanimously the best, well-trained, most intelligent team on the planet. Make sure you guys are pushing us as much as possible. Like you said, like, comment, subscribe, follow us on Instagram. And if you're looking for coaching, go to thpstrength.com. Some of you guys have asked about supplements. We use Legion. We always recommend that. But we have other nutrition podcasts that will go into more detail on that in the yeah, future. And we'll go all into detail about that. We get a lot of questions from our members about why Legion and what really differentiates. It's a whole other topic. Let's just discuss yeah. it later. Plyometrics part one. Peace out, guys. <laughs> Talk to you guys later. Bye.